Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. The guest on this episode is Abby Artemisia of The Wander School. The Wander School is a foraging school that Abby teaches. Abby also has a book out, and she sells it on her website. And I will put a link to it on the Publicly Challenged website, as well as a few other links that we talk about within this episode. And here's the episode. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Abby Artemisia, and she is the owner and instructor at the Wander School. She's a new author and she also does a lot of other cool stuff and I can't wait for you guys to meet her. So here she is. Abby, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Lucas, for having me on. Oh, you are welcome. It's more my pleasure than yours, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> can you introduce us a little bit and really how did you get started foraging? Yeah. Well, that's a lot. Let's see. Where do I start? <laughs> Introduction's fine. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll give you the abridged version. Um, I am originally from Ohio, where I actually am right in this moment. And that is where I started foraging. But now I'm in rural North Carolina, western North Carolina, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And um, I honestly, what I tell everybody... And what I tell people is the best way to get started is that I just ran around outside a lot. <laughs> and my parents let me do that. And we had some land to do it on. So I was really lucky. Not a lot of land. It was suburbia, but creeks and trees to climb and things like that. And um, from there, I ended, out, ended up out on the West Coast and I did some farming and I met some Native Americans and they started teaching me about the medicinal aspects of plants. And so I started learning about that and um, moved back to Ohio. And there wasn't really anybody teaching what I was doing. So I was lucky enough to meet an herbalist at a farmer's market. And I um, had had my daughter, she was really tiny, and I started a tea business. And so I was working with herbs, and I wanted to, in that process, learn more about plants. But I wasn't really learning much about plants, because I was ordering large quantities of herbs, and they were coming from all over the world in packages. And um, so I met an herbalist, and I started apprenticing with her, and I still do 
do some distance learning with her. Her name is Leslie Williams. She's really awesome. And um, then I, well, I herniated a disc in my back pretty badly. And so one of the ways that I healed from that was just by going out in the woods and taking my books with me. And so taking field guides with me and just teaching myself. Cause as I said, there was nobody teaching this stuff in Ohio at that point in time. And that's why it's so important to me to teach this so that people don't have to learn it themselves. Cause it's a lot harder that way. Um, so eventually I decided to go back to school and I went to Miami university here in Ohio um, for botany. And I got a botany degree and field botany was my first class and it was amazing. And I knew I had found my home, but still nobody was teaching what to do with those plants once you figured out what they were. So the school was a really great foundation for identifying the plants, but it didn't teach me what to do with them. So I am a lot self-taught in that way. So that's pretty cool that you did all that just to learn more about the plants that you were using. Um, so when you did that, what was your first item that you actually decided, you know what, I'm going to pick this item and I'm going to eat it. I'm going <laughs> to forage it. Well, you know, I have to say that foraging probably began when I was a kid because what most people don't realize is like when we go and we pick a blackberry, you know, on the edge of our yard or you get a honeysuckle flower and you pull the center part out and you suck the nectar off, that's actually foraging. So most of us have already foraged and we don't realize it. Or picking clover on the playground. And exactly. It and knowing yeah. that it tastes like lemon, even though it's really not clover. But right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's those things that, and, and reading books and things like that, you hear other foragers discuss that. And it's like, as we become adults, though, there's fear instilled within you, it seems like. And even me, yeah, I'll do some things and I'll try some things, but it's like, there's still that fear of the unknown. And without somebody guiding me or holding your hand per se and taking mm -hmm. you out in the woods and saying, okay, this is it. This is identifying features. Yes, this is the picture, but this is what it really looks like in this time of season or this, you know, part of the year. And yeah. I find that's what holds me back the most. Is there something that, I mean, obviously you probably teach your students that and things like that, but is there, I mean, is there other books or something that you found that really help you with different stages of the plant and things like that? I feel like that is the hard part with learning from books. You have to have a wide array of them. <laughs> so I always recommend to people to have at least three books to be able to cross-reference. Um, and if there are regional books, and so that's really helpful. Um, and so I would say find one for your region that is a field guide that has really great pictures. That is super helpful. Some books don't have any pictures and that's fine if you're more advanced, but getting started, you really want some good ones. So like for this region, my favorite book is Wildflowers of Tennessee, the Ohio Valley, and the, I think it's Appalachia or Southern Appalachians. Um, that one's really good. There's Wildflowers of the Field and Forest, which is a really good one. But then again, it's like they just focus on how do you identify those plants and not what do you do with them once you've identified them. So once I know what they are, then I'll go to a book like the Peterson's Guides, which are really great. And they have different books for edible and medicinals. So you might want to get one of each unless you're more interested in one of those and, and make sure that you get the one for your region, which is nice that they are regionally specific. I believe I ordered, I, I think it's a Peterson's and it's not actually that big of a book. It's almost like a pocket manual. And mm -hmm. I bought that. Oh my gosh. I bet you it was 10 years ago. 
and yeah. maybe even longer than that. And I, I kind of looked at it and it wasn't to me the most precise pictures. I don't know if it was, right. it, they were almost cartoony in their, in their <laughs> renditions. And it was yep. one of those things I was like, man, I can't, I can't go off of this alone. So I kind of exactly. put, put it aside. And yeah. then now it was really when I've uh, started picking up. And then I've been told that I kind of went the hard route by trying to do mushrooms and identify those <laughs> first. I don't know if that's a correct statement or not, but because yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's kind of like with, I know some folks like, so I knit and I crochet a little bit. It's like the same thing as that. I feel like it's whichever one you start with, you gravitate toward more. So I have met not as many people, but some people who started with mushrooms. And it's like so interesting because for them, mushrooms are easier than plants. For me, plants are easier than mushrooms. So, yeah, I think it just depends on what you start with and what you connect with more. But I love both of them personally, and I forage both, but way more plants than mushrooms. Are most of those plants medicinal at this point, or is it uh, a mixed array of both for edibles and and, uh, medicinal? Yeah, I would say it's mixed. Um, Some are, I love both, and I eat a lot of wild edibles, and I have a very large apothecary, and I would say at least 95% of my apothecary is plants that I have foraged myself so it it goes both ways and some are more edible some are more medicinal and some are both so typically when you do because I've I've got so many questions being so new but right is it tinctures is it teas is it uh like a poultice what I mean or is it just all of that combined I mean is that part of the uh, yeah process or that's a great question um It's all of that. And of course, it depends on like whether you have fresh or dried materials. So I will try to dry plants as much as I can to keep them in my apothecary. So I have them ready at all times of the year, because some are just very specific as to where they will grow. So it's like, if I'm up on the top of the mountain, and I see some hawthorn, I'm going to take that home. And I'm going to dry some and then I'm probably also going to tincture some. Um, but some plants don't dry very well. So like a couple I can think of off the top of my head are chickweed and cleavers, which are very common yard weeds, but they have a very high water content. So if you were to dry them, it'd be like trying to dry grass, you know, you'd be left with this like wilted nothing. So So what do you tend to do to preserve that then? Yeah. So for those kind of plants, I would um, most of the time tincture them, but I also do add them to salves. And so um, I teach DIY herbal medicine making. I think it's really important to make it as simple as possible, um, especially if you're just getting started and so I know we're going to talk about my book, yep. but um, <laughs> if you want, we can, this is a perfect segue into there it. So go. let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So my book is the herbal handbook for homesteaders came out about a year ago and um, it is all about DIY herbal medicine making. And so it has a whole lot of formulas in there from teas to tinctures to salves and bug spray and then herbs as food and different Um, foods that you can make like um, fire cider which is an immune tonic and I know we're going to talk about elderberry syrup and wild salads um, pesto things like that so there are a lot of ways um, to work with the plants and to preserve them for sure but yeah it really just depends on I think it depends on how long you've been doing it and how much you know you know, because when you're first starting out, like the easiest thing to do is just dry it or just cover your herbs in alcohol and make a super simple tincture. Um, but yeah, I'm all about making it as simple as possible. Right. So let's talk about the elderberry then. Yeah. <clears throat> I know that that's your favorite. 
because I've heard <laughs> on your podcast. And if people don't know, tell them your podcast name so they can go and listen. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's Wander, Forage, and Wildcraft. It's on pretty much all of the different platforms, and it's really fun. And I interview other foragers and wildcrafters all over the world and talk to them about the same things, like how they forage, what they forage, what they do with that, that kind of thing. And that's where I learned that elderberry is your favorite. So let's talk about, I guess we should start with the beginning, identifying features, because even I... I still haven't foraged any because A, I'm scared. Right. It could be poisonous, right? Right. And there are some things that I have found, or at least I think are elderberry, but it might be the wrong season and the stem coloration didn't look right. Like yeah. there was purplish color stems and I that doesn't really identify right. So Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I mean, I know um before this we talked about tips for beginning foragers and how what are the best ways to learn and so you can learn the way that I did but it's really the hard way (laughs) that's what I'm gonna say okay Um, being self-taught it's really hard and so you can use books you can watch YouTube videos I'm getting my YouTube channel revamped right now Um, but honestly like the best way is to learn from a person because it's a lot harder to confuse things if you see it in real time, in real life. Right. Um, so that's what I would recommend. You know, find somebody near you if you at all per- possibly can. Um, there is eattheweeds.com that people can go to. And there's foragers listed on there in all kinds of different areas. But yeah, I mean, Facebook is awesome. You can just check there and find people leading plant walks in various areas. But yeah, to get back to your question, um, elderberries. So they're a shrub, usually a larger shrub. Uh, depends on where they're growing, but they always like to grow near water. So that's an important thing. You'll always find them on a creek or stream or river bank or just somewhere that's really wet. Um, They're kind of like lanky, like um, they're, they remind me kind of like of bush honeysuckle. So some of us are very familiar with that one. So it's growth habit, how it shoots up a cluster of stems and they're pretty narrow Um, they break easily and they have, I call them warty. So they have little (laughs) bumps on them and that's a good identifying factor. Uh, their branches bend over at the top and they have clusters of berries and that's called an umble. And so I like to think about that, like an umbrella. It's kind of like what you would visualize an inside out umbrella looking like. And so this cluster of berries hanging down and it's like a flat top cluster and they're purple to almost black and they're very tiny usually. So very, very small, um, about the size of honeysuckle berries. And yeah, that dark purple color and there's a lot of them. They have white flowers, which the flowers are also medicinal and edible. So they make that uh, liqueur out of them in Europe called St. Germain. But they're also a great medicine for fevers and they're antiviral. So you can collect the flowers. And that's actually a good way to find them. The first time I ever saw elderberries, I was working on a farm. And I was taking a tour of the farm the first time I was there and just happened to see out of the corner of my eye this huge, huge area of just like straight white. And it was like a quarter acre of elderberries and they were all flowering. So um, in the spring, like depending on where you are, but mid spring or so, start looking out for shrubs with lots of tiny white flowers. And if you've ever seen yarrow flowers, they look very similar to that. Um, And then you can harvest the flowers, but you have to do it very carefully because the flowers, the ovary of the flower turns into the fruit. 
So we don't want to remove that ovary. But if you kind of gently comb them with your fingers or like even a wide tooth comb, you can get the petals without getting the ovaries and then you'll still get fruit. So what color would the actual cluster of stems be? Because I found something and it just, it truly looked like it with the clusters, the umbels and everything mm -hmm. on it. But, but the, they looked like they were aligned in a straight line almost. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I'm, not, I'm thinking because the stems are not the same color as the fruit, right? They are, they can be kind of a, like reddish to purple color. Okay, so maybe yeah. I'll have to do more research on that because I was fairly confident, but of course, mm -hmm. once again, the fear of the unknown and second guessing yeah. myself. And Definitely. I told you where I live, so I mean, the the terrain seems that it would be appropriate for that. So yeah, yeah, um, and there there are lookalikes, um, things like viburnums can look kind of similar. So. Um, one thing to look for is the compound leaves. And so um, a compound leaf, it's hard to describe <laughs> in audio, but um, it basically has, depending on what kind of compound leaf, but these have one central stem with multiple leaflets coming off. So they look like separate leaves, but they're leaflets because they're all coming off of the same stem. Um, like going vertically along that stem on either side, left and right of that main stem. So that's another good way to recognize them. Uh, one other thing would be when you break open the, the um, branches, they're hollow inside. Okay. And so that has led to children making them into flutes, which is a really, really, really bad idea. <laughs> and can you tell us why? The whole plant is actually poisonous, except for the flowers. So the flowers, you could eat some. I wouldn't eat a lot, but you could eat some raw. The berries, you could eat a few raw, but you wouldn't. They have cyanide in them. Cyanide can be medicinal. But um, we really want to process it in some way first. So cooking it like we do in syrup or um, making some other formula out of it and not eating them raw. And but definitely yeah. don't chew on the branches <laughs> or the leaves. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. And then what is – so. I heard from you the amazing thing about elderberry is the only scientifically backed research that says that it's not only a medicinal plant, but it, it's, uh, it's got, how does it go? You know it better than I do as far as. <laughs> yeah. So it actually can prevent the flu virus from entering the cells, which is super magical. I just think plants are amazing. So it can do that. It's antiviral in general, and it has a ton of vitamin C. So it is my go-to as far as cold and flu prevention and cold and flu fighting. It can supposedly cut the length of a cold or flu in half. That's amazing. It is. <laughs> so would you mostly make like a elderberry syrup or do you also make like jam with it or anything like that? You know, I have never attempted jam with elderberries, but yes, syrup is my main thing that I make with it. And I make lots and lots and lots of it. <laughs> That's cool. <gasps> yes. Yep. I make it. You can buy it on my website, as a matter of fact. That's also good to know. Anybody listening that wants that, we can go to the Wander School website, right? Yep. Wanderschool.com. Okay. Now... I got a question for you. My property is riddled with black walnut trees. Uh-huh. Nice. Now, you. <laughs> I normally chop them up. I hate to admit mm -hmm. this because somebody could get mad at me, but I chop them up with the mower because there's yeah. just so many of them. I just run yeah. them over. Yeah. What should I be doing with them? <laughs> because, well, I mean, I know the meat, mm -hmm. obviously, and then make oils and whatnot. Yeah. But... Um, I know from tanning, like for animal hides and things like that, you can actually 
use those for tanning because of the tannins exactly. and the dyes in them and things. But mm-hmm. what else? Yeah. So good question. And it's a good point too. Like it kind of depends on like, this is where something like permaculture would come in, you know, like what do you want your plan to be for your space? <laughs> like if you want to grow a garden, then yeah, black walnuts are not going to be helpful. Right. But if you want an area of some loud foraging, black walnuts are awesome because the thing if folks don't know about um, walnuts is that they have this natural phytochemical in them called juglone, which can actually prevent other plants from growing near it. So it would be a really bad place to have a garden. However, native plants are adapted to other native plants. So that's really cool. You could have your multi-level um, wild area there and have lots of foraging. So like black walnut would be a canopy species and you could have your spice bush growing underneath it and you could harvest spice bush and it'd be like totally fine with those black walnuts. I see them growing all the time. So that's something to think about. Um, but yeah, black walnuts, super valuable. Um, for the nuts, of course, and I would really recommend if you're going to eat the nuts to get a special cracker yes. made just for black walnuts. It will make your life a lot easier. <laughs> um, but yeah, also as a dye, um, those tannins for tanning, that's where that word came from. But also they're medicinal um, and it, it could go one of two ways. So some people make a liqueur out of it called nochino. And, um, some people like myself make medicine out of it. And so, um, you can do that in two different ways. You can, you, the green, when they're still green, the husk, that is when they're the most medicinal. So you want to try and catch them at that time and you can grate them with like a cheese grater and grate that green part off, um, be aware your fingers and everything they touch (laughs) will also be temporarily tanned. So um, you might want to wear gloves. I figured out from one of my students a few years ago, though, that there is an easier way to do it. And that is you watch for a blowdown after a storm. And so when the nuts fall on the ground and they're immature and they don't have developed nuts in there yet, they're really small, you can just cut them in half with a knife. And you don't have to grate them. And then you just throw them in a jar, put some alcohol over the top of them and let them sit. And you have a black walnut hull tincture. And so that is really strong medicine. So you want to use it cautiously and do your research. Um, It is in my book, but (laughs) it is (laughs) a little plug. Um, But it is helpful for getting rid of worms in humans and in animals. So always do your research with animals because different animals are more sensitive than others, especially cats are really sensitive. But for dogs, it could be a great warmer. Um, And for people, and I've actually done this with my daughter because worms used to go around the school all the time. And so the traditional recipe was um, black walnut and either wormwood or mugwort, which is um, grow, can grow wild around here, uh, but you could grow wormwood and then cloves. And you mix the three together and it's a strong warmer. And um, black walnut hull is also antifungal. So for topically for things like ringworm or athlete's foot, it can be really great as well. But again, remembering if you put on your skin, it's going to turn it brown. Yes. My daughters learned that. Yeah. (laughs) They came inside. I tried to wipe them off as good. And and I knew it was going to happen. I turned around for two seconds and they picked it up and started throwing it around like it was a baseball. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dad always gets in a lot of trouble with stuff like that. But (laughs) But, But, um, yeah, I actually, I have a recipe on my website and I'm coming out with a um, forage digital cookbook very, very soon that will be for sale on my website, but it's also on my Patreon site. So patreon.com slash the wander school. 
And um, I have a recipe in there for foraged chocolate banana bread with wild nuts. Forage chocolate? How do you forage the actual chocolate? Well, you don't forage the okay. chocolate. Just uh, <laughs> not, not the bananas either, but... You know, or you, you could gotta... substitute bananas with the pawpaws, possibly, right? Oh, my God. That would be fantastic, yes. Pawpaws yeah. is probably, like, my second favorite foraged food, so, yes. So, I've got a question. I don't know if you have the answer to that, but yes. there's a tree that could one day be extinct because there isn't certain animals to digest and process the seeds mm. properly. Yes. Do you know what that is uh, by me saying that? <sighs> I do. And... Some people grind it and make coffee out of okay, it. Okay, Kentucky coffee tree? Yeah. I is that true? Say. I have heard that is true. I have, yeah. And yeah, so I know a guy that gave me some seeds and he told me if I want them to grow... And, and I guess I have, I have another buddy that planted them on his property, but he had to actually take a belt sander and grind, right. grind through the outer portion of the seed. Mm -hmm. And then I believe he started the seed in water to get it to sprout and then planted it. And he had to do that in order to get them to grow. Yeah, there are different seeds like that. Um, I was really lucky at Miami University. I took a plant propagation class and we got to learn how to process all those different seeds and so some you would have to stratify so like keep cold and some you would have to scarify and so that might be scraping them with something it might be putting them in sulfuric acid where you're simulating them actually going through an animal's digestive system so it is really cool to think about that but yeah there are definitely um, some some plants like that, and I think I did hear that plants like um, honey locust have those huge thorns because they had um, different pests that would eat them that were large and are now extinct. So what made me think of that anyway, that kind of got sidetracked there. But yeah. what made me think of that was the pawpaw because the pawpaw mm -hmm. you have to stratify. And I know a guy that yeah. grew some pawpaws in his yard and that was a big thing. And that was the first pawpaw I ever ate was one that mm -hmm. he brought me. And he said he had a problem with the squirrels eating them all before he could get out there. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but so he brought me those seeds and he told me I had to stratify them. And when when we, I don't know, somehow I said the pawpaw and it popped in my head about the seeds of the coffee bean, but. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I love pawpaws and I'm going to give just a little plug because I think that your listeners would be interested, but if anybody wants to pro uh, propagate pawpaws, my friend Doug Crouch, who I have on one of my episodes, um, just came out with a pawpaw propagation class that you can get on his website, which is Trio Permaculture. Um, so I can send you a link if you want to put that in. But I just think it's like that and elderberries would probably be my top two choices to plant on my land. Um, if I had to just pick two, I would choose those because so much food and medicine. And like, that's the thing. Like people are going crazy over elderberry syrup right now. It's like <laughs> so insanely overpriced. Because people either don't know how to make it, don't know where to get elderberries, or don't want to take the time to do it. Which, like, I totally understand. Like, we, we don't have time to do everything, you know, and make a living, too. But um, you can grow elderberries. Like, that's the thing. It's hard to find. It can be frustrating to find elderberries because they can be there one day and gone the next. Because, like, the birds just descend and they eat them all. But if you grow them yourself, you can grow a ton, especially if you have a wet area or you could simulate that. And um, they really like acid. So you can put down some coffee grounds around them uh, or some pine needles. You can grow them yourself and you can put bird netting over them and then you can harvest them all. <laughs> 
So let's talk about that. That's a good point when you said harvesting all. Let's talk a little bit about sustainability and kind of rules of thumb or, um, you know, I I mean, obviously that depends on what it is, whether or not it's invasive, whether how it Mm -hmm. grows, but um, that's something that a new forager definitely should, should know. Definitely. Yeah. I love that you asked that question because it's so important to me. I don't think that you can talk about foraging without talking about sustainability and ethics. Um, And it definitely does. You're totally right. It definitely depends on what plant it is and what part of the plant it is. So you know, I'm sure like being a mushroom hunter that like, that's the really cool thing about mushrooms. Um, You can harvest as much as you want. And actually most of the time it's going to help spread the mushrooms because you're spreading the spores. Um, Unless it's chaga, which is a different story entirely. That's really, isn't the chaga... Actually, now I kind of regret my peach tree got canker and Mm -hmm. I cut it down right away because, or actually I ripped it out because I didn't want it to get to the rest of my stone fruit trees. Yeah. And if I would have left it, it could have possibly developed into chaga, right? Or is that a reishi? No. Neither. Okay. (laughs) No, no, that's a different kind of fungus. Um, I'm not sure what kind of fungus that is that grows on peach trees. Um, but I don't know if it, I'm curious if it's related to cherry rot fungus, just because they're both in the same family, but that's getting crazy (laughs) botanical, right? (laughs) Um, we don't go into that, but no, um, chaga grows on birch trees usually, and usually only at high altitudes. So 5,000 feet or so and above, although my friend did find one in his yard in North Carolina that was like 3,000 feet, Um, but that's really rare. So they grow, um, yeah, on birch trees, usually um, yellow birch where I am in North Carolina. They also grow in places like Michigan, I've heard a lot. But yeah, they are not actually a mushroom. There's something called a sclerotia. Hopefully I'm saying that right. And um, they take a really long time to grow. So years, they take years to grow. And the reason why people love them so much is because um, they are the supposedly second highest antioxidant food in the world so So truly a superfood then right yeah and in all the superfood craze these days yeah truly a superfood exactly but they're being way way over harvested because everybody wants them and so i'm just going to tell y'all right now like please don't consume chaga every day (laughs) i i have seen people like putting them into tea bags and selling them that way And I just think that it's too threatened for that. I think that it's one of those things um, that should be reserved for when we really need it. And so the other thing about chaga is that you can cook it and simmer it over and over and over again. And so what I did when I had a wood stove would be I would throw it into the wood stove. And you could do this in a crock pot too, but just keep it on the wood stove day after day and take some water out because it's a it's a fungus and so this is getting way off topic but just so (laughs) y'all know if you want to make much your medicine like you need to cook it for a long time and so um yeah i would just keep it on the wood stove strain some out and drink it and then put more water in and you can do that like five six times at least and you just need a little chunk. And that way you could drink it every day. But like just making tea once and just steeping it, like you're not going to really get much out of it unless it's been processed already. And then still like just making one cup of tea and throwing it out. Like that's wasteful in my opinion. So um, yeah, but chaga is amazing. And sorry about the tangent <laughs> no it's, it's absolutely fine that's good it's all good information right and if uh, somebody does find one I know a lot of my listeners are 
mostly in the Midwest, so they're not going to actually find too many of them. But probably not. Um, but yeah, if you go yeah. go somewhere else at a high altitude, then yes, you can. And so, what were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about a um, little bit of stain- sustainability and conservative sustainability. approaches. To- yeah, thank you. So that's how I got on that. <laughs> but. <laughs> But I was saying that, yeah, the awesome thing about mushrooms is you can harvest as much as you want um, because they're like the fruit of a tree. Like if you harvested an apple off of a tree, um, I used to to lead tours for a friend, Alan Muscat. He has a company called No Taste Like Home, and that's what he would talk about all the time. He's known as the mushroom man. He has lots of good mushroom info, and um, he would compare them to picking a picking an apple off of a tree you're not harming the apple tree when you pick an apple off of it it's the same thing with the mushroom just not chaga but um yeah so so that's the thing right if we pick fruit we're not going to be harming the tree and oftentimes we can help spread the seeds too of that tree and so like that's that's the thing like i have a tradition every year when I pick the first pawpaw, I eat it where I found it, and I throw the seeds on the ground so that they can regrow. Um, but if I were to harvest something like bark, um, I prefer to harvest twigs instead of bark because I feel like it's way more sustainable. Um, you're opening up much less of the tree to disease or infection. It's just like pruning the tree. So you can do that and you'll still be getting, if it's, if it's a small twig about the size, uh, the width of your pinky or so, then you'll still be getting the good nutrient rich part. So that's one thing I do. Um, and then I don't feel like there's any hard and fast rule. People always ask me like if you're harvesting something herbaceous, so like some green leafy thing, how much can you take? And Unfortunately, it's not cut and dry. Um, It really takes getting to know that plant. So the more you can go out and see that plant in the wild, the better you get to know it and how abundant it is. And I always have to warn people because like where I am in Western North Carolina, it's like one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. And so it can be really deceptive because things look like they're super abundant, but they're only abundant right there. So go out, get to know that plant, learn everything you can about it. Um, There's a good website, United Plant Savers, and they do a lot of good work with at-risk plants, and you can check there and see if it's on their species at risk list. Um, That's another good way to go about things, but Um, generally we just want to remember with anything that's a leaf, it's going to be how that plant makes its food. So it's, it's solar panel basically. And, um, it's creating chlorophyll through photosynthesis and it's feeding the plant. So if we take too many of those leaves, that plant could die. Um, so, you know, a few plants from every a few, sorry, a few leaves from every plant. If it's a tree, then, you know, you could take one twig's worth of, of leaves if it has a lot of leaves on it. But yeah, it takes getting to know that plant and researching it for sure. Okay. That, that was a good explanation on that, I think. And then, Thanks. of course, there's some things probably, right? Like Japanese knotweed, um, oh, miner's yeah. lettuce, yeah, probably take as super, much as you want, right? <laughs> super good point. Yeah, so Japanese knotweed is a great one to forage, and you can um, forage those stems when they're still young and tender, and they taste kind of like rhubarb. So, um, and it's highly invasive, and it's huge. The plant's really large. So, yeah, harvest as much as you want out of that. I know in this region, garlic mustard is a big invasive. Yes, it is. It's all super over my tasty. yard. Yeah, so it's super tasty. So here's a tasty. question for you. What's, yeah. Okay. Obviously not this time of year, right? Because it's all kind of turning brown and different, you know, it's dying off. But should early spring, late spring, summer, what point? And 
I've been kind of reading up on it and it's more or less one of those things um, to harvest it where it's, it's like it's first or second cycle. Mm-hmm. I guess you would say. I don't even know if that's the right term. but uh, For garlic mustard specifically? Yeah, for about? the garlic mustard. So the crazy thing about garlic mustard is it has this natural antifreeze in it. So I don't know about where you are in Illinois. Like here in Ohio, where I am today, uh, it is growing right now and it's green. So honestly, I would say anytime that it's green, it um, comes from somewhere where it's, I think it's Eurasian. So like Europe and Asia originally. Um, So the thing about invasive plants is they thrive because they're usually from a harsher environment than where they're growing currently. So they can out survive the native plants. Um, So the way that garlic mustard works usually is it will grow when nothing else will grow oftentimes. So through the winter, if you don't get a super hard freeze often, And it will be like the first plant to come back in the fall and then die back in the summer when it gets hot out. So I would say anytime those leaves look green and feel tender and when it starts getting hot out, they can get um, tough. So you wouldn't want to harvest them then. But any other time really is good. So even right now. Right be, now yeah. would be totally fine. Yeah, okay. they're probably fresh and tender right now. They probably just started coming back. Okay, um, that, that might be what I was looking at just a couple of weeks ago. It was like after that hard freeze we had and it started thawing mm, out again. So. Yeah, but um, the one caution I would say is that they can be hard on um, the thyroid and the kidneys. So if you have issues with either of those, then go easy. I mean, I just say everything in moderation, right? That's life, so, right? In yeah, general, exactly. it should be taken that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So definitely. don't go crazy. Don't juice it. Um, don't eat it by the handful. But, you know, I throw it into my pesto and I think it's great. So instead of throwing garlic into my pesto, it does double duty as a green and uh, that garlic flavor really nice that sounds good i might have to Mm -hmm. try that now oh yeah so i appreciate it that was really good um actually maybe one more question real quick if you yeah of course so best public foraging spots (laughs) that's such a complicated one and roadsides (laughs) good idea bad idea bad idea bad idea (laughs) okay yeah so There are several pointers we want to think about when we think about where do we want to forage and what's the best place. So never where there's going to be pollutants of any kind. So roadside, bad, because there's going to be runoff from the road and there's going to be air pollution that's falling um, from the cars as well. So no, there's also it might be sprayed um, with pesticides and herbicides and things like that. So um, probably more likely herbicides, but yeah, um, you know, I often find sumac berries, which I like to harvest around power lines. That's not a place we want to harvest because they do spray a lot of herbicides in those areas. So a lot of public lands will be sprayed. And then you also get to legalities. And that one is like so much more complicated. Right. Um because it changes from place to place. So like state parks, some state parks you can forage in, but some you can't. Some you can forage certain things and not others. Some places you have to get a permit for certain things. So you really need to do your research. And what I recommend to people is the best place to forage is one, your backyard to other people's backyards where you've gotten permission and know they're not spraying. And three is your local organic or natural farmer. 
And so like go to them and be like, yo, can I harvest your weeds? <laughs> I'll be like, hey, you want to harvest my weeds for free? Heck yes. Um, because oftentimes, you know, usually maybe as much as half of their land is not in production. It could be fallow or it could be woodland. And um, they'd be more than happy for you to come and harvest that. So I think private lands where you have permission is honestly your best bet. So um, I know farmers talk a lot about pigweed, how bad mm. it is and everything. And that's actually edible, right? But then you get into the problem of they spray and try and eradicate it, right? right. So now do yeah. you really want to try and harvest anything? And then think about the fact that we actually put what they do spray into our bodies anyway. So We do. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You have to know what they're doing on their land. So again, organic or natural farmers. Yeah. And I would just say go to the farmer's market, you know, and find those people and just ask them. That's good it's advice. a good way to go. And honestly, like I have had, I'm, this is going to be my third book. I'm just giving you a little preview, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have some great stories, but like some of my best stories and best memories come from being bold enough to go talk to landowners and be like, Hey, can I harvest this thing off your land? And, um, doing a, a drive by. And so before we got on the air here, we were talking about, you know, a picture you saw of mine on Instagram where mm -hmm. I found some roadside chicken of the woods mushrooms. And granted, they were not right on the side of the road. They were on the side of somebody's driveway. But it's like, that's a really cool thing. The more you do this, the more you start noticing those things, your vision gets really honed in. And um, I just happened to see those as I was driving by and they were on the side of a tree next to a mailbox. And I went to the owner um, who I thought was the owner. I wasn't actually sure whose land it was on. And the guy said, oh, yeah, those people actually don't live here. They live like a few hours away. And I'm sure they would be more than happy for you to harvest those mushrooms. Right. And I've had some really great conversations with people that way, like people you never think that you would meet in daily life. So I highly encourage you to be brave and go talk to people. Okay. Because a lot of times people are not going to harvest that stuff and it's just going to go to waste. Right. So that's good. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And I think that's pretty much all the questions I have. I'm sure I'll probably be reaching out to you again with for some advice here and there throughout. And uh, Yeah, I would um, be happy to do that. Yeah. So uh, I appreciate it so much. And thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Publicly Challenged, and you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or PubliclyChallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. most legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment